Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Mormon Matters Podcast. This is John DeLynn, and we're very glad to have you today. We have a special feature that we're going to do. Um, what we're going to share with you now is a session from the 2007 Salt Lake Sunstone Symposium called Inoculating the Saints, the Pros and Cons of Proactively Teaching Church Members About Difficult, difficult Mormon Issues. The panelists include Charles Randall Paul, Blake Osler, Kevin Barney, and Mike Ash. All of them, or at least three of the four, um, sort of proudly embrace the, the moniker apologists. But they talk a lot about inoculation and how openness and candor and honesty uh, are very important in terms of how the church deals with church history. So what we're going to do now is, um, thanks to Sunstone, we're going to share this session with you. We hope you very much enjoy it. I sure did. And then we're going to have um, two Mormon Matters episodes back-to-back that discuss a reaction uh, to this to this great panel. So we want to thank you for tuning in, and we also want to thank Sunstone for providing us with this uh, presentation. And if you do enjoy this presentation, we want to encourage you to go to sunstoneonline.com, and you can find other MP3s there that um, you can purchase if they're of interest to you as well. So we hope you enjoy this uh, discussion of inoculation, and we look forward to the follow-up episodes as well. Thank you very much for tuning in. I'd like to welcome you all to this session of the Sunstown Symposium. It's been a great day for me. I wish I'd been here all the conference. Uh, Today, our subject is Inoculating the Saints, the Pros and Cons of Proactively Teaching Church Members About Difficult Mormon Issues. Our participants, panelists, will be uh, Blake Osler, who's an attorney, an author, He's written Exploring Mormon Thought, The Attributes of God and and Exploring Mormon Thought, The Problems of Theism and the Love of God. Blake has written two great books, and I know another one's coming up. And uh, he is truly, as far as I'm concerned, one of the finest modern Mormon philosophers that we have in, in in the sense that he speaks to the philosophical tradition and doesn't just pontificate out of his own personal um speculations but speaks through voices of past theologians and tries to really communicate with them. I appreciate Blake personally very much. I'm, I'm glad to be here today with Kevin Barney and Mike Ash for the first time. Kevin Barney is an attorney, author of numerous articles on LDS scripture and theology and a member of the FAIR board of directors. FAIR, for those of you who don't know uh, or are on the other side of the, the veil, uh, is unfair to you. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's a group of Mormon uh, apologists who work very hard on communicating both to the saints and to those who are interested in Mormonism in a uh, apologetic way with respect to critiques usually of uh, Mormon positions, doctrines, history, etc. Mike Ash is owner and webmaster of mormonfortress.com and author of The Sin Next to Murder, an alternative interpretation that was written in Sunstone in November of 2006. Um, And those of you who have read that article were probably touched by his um, attempt to uh, express uh, his personal thoughts about uh, sexual sin and how uh, we should take it seriously and position it in our current lives as members of the church in a way that will be 
I think, remedial and helpful uh, to those who've been involved. And on one level, we all are involved, in that, at least in the temptation, if not uh, sins. And so I found his article a very interesting article, shifting trends perhaps in, in emphasis um, in the way we should uh, teach our children and each other about uh, the temptations to sexual immorality and repentance. I think that's all I'd like to say about you guys, and I'm going to dig into my response. I, by the way, my name is Charles Randall Paul. Um, I am the president of the Foundation for Interreligious Diplomacy and uh, got my Ph.D. in midlife at the University of Chicago Committee on Social Thought, um, and I do real estate development to keep my family alive. It's coming back. It's coming back. The, the market's going down. Real estate's coming back. <laughs> and that's really important. Okay. Um, inoculating the sense, saints. Uh, we're supposed to talk today about difficult Mormon issues. I thought I'd, uh, in, in this context, just tried to find for myself what a difficult Mormon issue is. It would be teaching a little boy that it makes a difference to speak to an invisible absentee father who has all power and supposedly loves him dearly, but for the kid's own good, apparently never talks to him, never visits him, never sends him presents at Christmas or his birthday. In other words, teaching a kid to pray, uh, bringing up a child in the world to believe in God is perhaps one of the most difficult tasks that we've been assigned. And... um, I think that goes not just to the Latter-day Saints, but to all believers around the world. Um, Another difficulty, uh, uh, let's look at a a case history, Roman Catholicism. Uh, Assume overtly, or look at a case where overtly power-hungry, immoral popes excommunicated each other. Then selling indulgences um, uh, and and killing heretics after uh, vicious inquisitions um, attempted to preach the love of Christ to their, their congregations. Oh, dear. What happens when your light goes out? Oh, dear. That's not a good sign. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to mingle this with spirit. But, uh, all right, it's back. We're back. Um, how would this go down today if President Hinckley moved to Kansas City and excommunicated President Monson? President Monson tried to kill President Hinckley before he fled town and, ex- and excommunicated him, by the way, when he got to Kansas City. President Monson had VD because of his extracurricular activities like ancient popes did. President Hinckley is paying for his new mansion in Kansas City with $15 million that he raised by uh, giving the second endowment to a hundred highest bidders who had just had to have their calling election made sure. These are real historical events in the Catholic Church. And it's the most successful religious organization in the history of the world. It's still here. Okay? What's a difficult problem? Okay? We're going to be talking about issues today. What's a difficult problem? Even in our own history. Uh, a hundred years ago, Joseph F. Smith, on the front page of the then, let's call it the New York Times, admits to a Senate committee that he'd been lying about lying with various wives, but promises to be good from now on and to keep his other apostles in line too. Just don't send me to jail, please. Okay? 
and on the front page, all the wives and children. What's a problem? I mean, today, we're worried about Romney? Again, even in our own times, what have we come through? Okay? So, yes, there are difficult questions, but I'd just like to put this in certain context of how, how people can sustain themselves when they have deep faith and solidarity. Um, we have yet found, in fact, the letter that I'm sure is out there um, from uh, uh, Oliver to Joseph saying, I have enjoyed writing this revealed history, in quotes, with you, but I just don't know if we can keep it up without something going wrong. I am out of newfangled reformed Egyptian names, and this story of wealth corrupting the people all the time is just getting boring. <laughs> I, I hope we make a bundle on this, because I could be teaching school and making something of myself. Okay, when that letter comes out, we might have a problem. Okay, assuming it hasn't been Hoffmanized, you know. Uh, but again, what are problems? You know, we've got to think about that hard. Enough of that background. Uh, the theory of interpersonal persuasion. This is what, uh, my, my own theory on how do we present this inoculation question. I have a simple theory of interpersonal persuasion. All interaction, social interaction, is in part, at least, persuasive toward change in the others we interact with. The simplest degree to the most complex. This leads to the inevitable fact, then, that we are all infecting each other all the time. The question is not if one will be contaminated, but by whom. I see the world in agonistic medical terms here. Human, uh, humans live in a perpetual condition of plague wars. The effort to influence change, or if you prefer, to persuade conversion, is ubiquitous and constant in human life. So, who do you let into your life besides Jay Leno? Who do you introduce to your kids besides SpongeBob and The Simpsons? And let us not kid about ourselves about this. There's no such thing really today as passively tolerating others. If you tolerate them, they will eat you alive because they are actively going for it, and you are part of the it they're going for. <clears throat> There's no question, I think, that true love respects the freedom of others, but it precisely is intolerant of their wayward ways. Um, I'd like to read for a moment something by uh, Marcel, Gabriel Marcel. Uh, he said this. Uh, the fundamental question is to determine the principle on which we can base a tolerance, which is really a counter-intolerance, but which is not at the same time the expression or mark of a complete skepticism, but rather the living incarnation of a faith. In other words, I acknowledge a responsibility analogous to that which would, fail on, would fall on me if, as a doctor, I had to check an ep epidemic. In this event... I would not only have to prescribe certain preventative measures, but also seek the cause of the disease and attempt to act directly on it. In any case, I must reject the argument that people have the right to poison themselves if they want and eventually infect one another. Such a right does not exist, is null and void, and must be categorically denied. Possibly the objection may be raised that this 
case is quite different for the doctor acts on the basis of an objective certitude sharing nothing in common with religious or moral belief which necessarily offers a minimal certitude hence we are not justified in urging the latter kind of belief against a different belief which may may or may not be true but I do not believe that we can pose the problem satisfactorily in these terms. To put the problem in a nutshell, we must instead put ourselves in the place of someone who has absolute faith and for whom the possibility of being mistaken does not arise. The real question is that of determining whether the supposedly complete certainty such a person has of possessing the truth precludes the possibility of manifesting a genuine tolerance for those who think differently. The imagine, <coughs> these are my words now. Um, the imagery of contagion has been used by modern thinkers to describe any irrational movement powerful enough to convert the healthy masses into sick fanatics. Conflict theorists, econ economist Con Kenneth Bolin, Boulding, excuse me, said that people catch religion or political views from others who spread e epidemics. Epidemiologists have developed, this is quoting Boulding, ha have developed interesting models of the process by which contagious diseases are spread through a population. These models have a good deal of relevance to group conflict of the kind that is carried out by religious conversion. Boulding, like many others, see, seems to see proselytizing converts as victims of an unhealthy contagion. However, to understand religious proselytizing, one must reverse the above metaphor. The population is already infected with a deadly worldly disease and needs to catch a religious antidote to survive. What is needed is a new healthy contagion that will save the world from its current misdiagnosed disease. I'm just about finished, finished guys, here. So we're all going to take about 15 minutes, then we'll have discussion with the group and each other. I'd like to suggest, uh, in certain respects, that this topic begs for a model something like the uh, sex education model that's urged upon us these days, both in the church and out, which is something like this. Um, give the kid as much as he or she can handle as soon as possible, and even then it'll be too late. Okay? We, our kids are always ahead of us, okay, unhappily. But we should, in this case, take Joseph Smith's injunction to heart. Truth will cut its own way. We have no fear of the truth. Therefore, let's uh, tell our kids the truth as we see it, honestly telling them that we are not the purveyors of all truth, but as we, as their parents, see it. We as their, our friends see it. We as our ecclesiastical brothers and sisters see it. And then lay back in the conviction that the love of God and the spirit of Christ will let truth cut its own way. Hugh Nibley used to say, be tentative about everything except your loyalty to the Lord. And I think that's a very interesting point of view that, that, that Joseph Smith could almost put up with anything except disloyalty. And uh, that got him really ticked off. And the, I think the Latter-day Saints um, can show great loyalty to each other in our down days, in our up days, in our questioning, and not 
not go against that great line in the in the uh, 121st section of the Doctrine and Covenants that I'd like to leave with you. Um, that when we criticize someone or tell them the truth and they disagree with us, we are then obligated to show them that our love for them is greater than the bonds of death. We're willing to die for them. So be careful who you criticize as a Latter-day Saint. You've got to also underscore that with a certain legitimate veracity that says, I'm willing to die for you. When we get into each other's lives this way, there's, a, there's an authority that is unspoken but is real that, that really is a confidence that you have a love for this other person. Your motive in talking to them about it is love. And they sense it and they feel safe there, even though the, 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 the subject is extremely difficult. So, um, I would say in, in closing then, if we are to avoid hand-to-hand combat, we need to engage in heart-to-heart contests. William James said, we need to find the moral equivalent of war to keep us interested in life. He thought fighting harsh nature would perhaps grant us a common enemy in the world. This is like praying for an attack from Mars to bring peace among the earthlings. It, it lasts, however, only as long as the attack is severe and imminent. And then we're back to our real business of interpersonal persuasion that is the basis for conflict and love in our lives. Humans find it stimulating to exercise dominion over each other, not Martians. So let us admit it and be about our Father's business, persuading others to love us by kindness, directness, and willingness to die for them, that we may have a chance to persuade them to come our way without compulsory means for a very long time. Those are my thoughts. That was a ramble. I'm sure yours is going to be much more direct. I'm going to have to hunch over. Um, Can you hear me in the back? Okay, good. It's working. When uh, Dan called me and asked me to uh, participate in this, uh, the the phone connection wasn't very good. And I I thought he was asking me to be on a panel about premature inoculation. (laughs) I told him I didn't know anything about that. I always wait till November to get my flu vaccine. Um, But when when the phone connection uh, came back and I realized it was a panel on inoculation as and I guess I should explain, I, I assume everyone's is familiar with the metaphor of inoculation. Uh, if you're not, it has to do with the idea of affirmatively or proactively teaching, uh, you know, difficult or challenging issues. And, and it's, the theory is it's like getting a shot, where you get a, a controlled small dose of the disease, and you allow the body to build up antib- antibodies, and so... Later, when it's hit with a virulent form of that disease, it's protected and, and it doesn't die. And so inoculation is, the idea is it's kind of the same thing, only with the, you know, uh, challenging church issues. Um, so I, I was happy to be on this panel because I've long been an advocate of more and better inoculation. I think it's a good thing. I think uh, we should do more of it. Uh, the details of exactly how to do it are, you know, not always clear, but uh, uh, in various ways, I think it's a good thing. And I, I think the church has done some of it in the past. 
Uh, a lot of times in the past, it's been kind of resistant to, to affirmatively teaching difficult things. Uh, I think there's a clear trend that the church is doing more of it these days. There's, there's much more openness. I think that's a great thing. I applaud the church, and I hope that the church continues and, and accelerates on this path. Uh, my remarks are going to be a little more practical and personal and, and uh, not so much uh, philosophical on this subject. And I want to start by sharing with you a story which kind of illustrates why I think inoculation is a good thing and we should be doing more of it. And this has to do with uh, events that occurred about 30 years ago in the ward of my youth in northern Illinois. And I, I, my family moved there in 1962 when I was seven years old and uh, it was a small branch at the time. It was, and as you know, or as you may know, if you're in a small branch, it becomes your family. And um, over time, it became a small ward. Um, and these events I'm going to describe took place when I was away on my mission. So what I'm telling you, I heard secondhand later. But there was a woman in our ward named Ruth who was just a pillar of the ward. Uh, she was um, you know, always in the Relief Society, leadership, uh, very active. And, and she was one of the, the foundation stones upon which our little group was, was built. One day she was at work and she had a colleague who was a Seventh-day Adventist who uh, you know, informed her that the Sabbath originally had been on Saturday. And I, as it was told to me, this was not some proselytism or anything like that. It was just something that came up in conversation and, and this woman shared a fact. Ruth did not react well to this knowledge. She said, well, no, the Sabbath is Sunday. My church has always had the Sabbath on Sunday. Uh, and so the, the Sabbath has always been on Sunday and, and if it were anything other than that my church would have told me so and that was her reaction she goes and talks to the bishop about it and the bishop confirms that yes the Sabbath is on Sunday the Sabbath has always been on Sunday <laughs> and uh, so you're absolutely right and in, in fairness to my bishop I mean you know our, our leadership back then, at that time, these were salt of the earth, wonderful people. Uh, but there's no one there with a master's degree from a divinity school or anything like that. You know, he didn't know. So she does something fateful. She steps into a library and uh, actually kind of does a little research on her own. And uh, and lo and behold, that's not the case. Uh, the Sabbath originally was on you know sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, the way Jews observe it to this very day. Uh, and she was shocked. And uh, so again, she she continued to work with the ward leaders uh, about this, and and the ward leaders you know didn't didn't know how to help her, or what to say, or they didn't know anything about this. Eventually, they found someone in the stake who knew something about this issue. And, of course, this is 30 years ago in northern Illinois. That, we're talking a big stake. This guy probably lived an hour away. Uh, and eventually, you know, this guy talked to her. But by then, it was too late. And here's the part of the story that, that had made a huge impression on me. Uh, after a couple of weeks, the issue stopped being about Seventh-day Sabbath. It was still a concern for her, but that receded into the background. The issue for her was that she felt that she had been lied to or deceived, uh, that, that uh, you know, the, the church had not been truthful with her, uh, had broken faith or trust with her. And, uh, and that, became, that 
is a totally different issue than any substantive issue you can think of. That feeling of having been lied to, that's not something you can overcome easily, uh, if, if at all. And uh, so she, she left the church. She lost, you know, if the church is lying about this, what else are they lying about? What else haven't they told me? And I don't trust them anymore, and I'm going to leave the church. And in fact, she became a Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, <laughs> which is fine. It's a fine tradition. But uh, we had a ward reunion. I haven't lived in that ward for decades, but we had a reunion just within the last month. And uh, the woman who's the absolute matriarch of the history of the church in um, uh, northern Illinois. Um, excuse me. The most wonderful woman you can imagine. And uh, she got up and talked, and, and she actually talked about this. This is something that happened 30 years ago, and it was that traumatic a thing in, in the life of our uh, little word family. Excuse me. So I learned something from that. Um, pick your hardest church issue you can think of. And I don't know what it is. Let's say polyandry for the sake of discussion. I will gladly walk into my gospel doctrine class on Sunday and teach a lesson about polyandry before I want to have to talk to anyone about the church uh, lying to them or, or not you know, being uh, transparent or forthcoming with them. So that, that really has influenced the way I think about things. And uh, uh, I, I've done a lot of you know, inoculation uh, over the years in the church. And if, if you're doing it in a faithful setting, a church classroom or something like that, someone's home, uh, people can absorb hard facts. Um, and it, it might be painful at first, I mean, that, that metaphor is there for a reason. It's when you get a shot, that needle is scary, and you might be afraid. And when they put it in, it hurts, and it depends on the shot. It might hurt a lot, and you might be sore for a few days, and there's always the chance of an adverse reaction. Inoculation is not a riskless transaction. Someone could, you know, uh, freak out and lose their faith and leave the church. That's always a risk. But we get shot, we give our children's, children immunizations for a reason because there's a benefit and there's a risk and, and yeah there's a risk but the benefit uh, of getting that shot uh, usually far outweighs the risk of, of the, the short term pain so I, I'm a big believer in inoculation um, there's always going to be choices we have to make in various situations about you know should we go there is this the right time is this the right setting uh, you know, how should we go there? So the, the details are difficult, I, I acknowledge. Uh, it's not always going to be clear. Um, so you can either broach a difficult issue or you can stay quiet. And you can hope that this class or this person never encounters that issue or that someone else inoculates them three years from now and you don't have to and, and you don't have to worry about it. Um, and maybe part of the decision tree there is how likely that particular issue is going to, is to arise for how likely someone is to learn about that later. And, you know, a couple decades ago, it might have been a rational decision to say, you know what, people probably aren't going to learn about that. And let's just not raise it and we'll deal with it if and when it comes up. But uh, things have changed. Uh, 
I don't think I encountered any anti-Mormon literature until I went on my mission. And then the main thing I encountered was Mormonism, shadow, or reality. And that was only because I walked into a Christian bookstore and I put my money on the table and I bought it. I had to affirmatively go and get it. Um, and sometimes I'd be teaching people and, you know, their crazy Aunt Sally would send them a tract or something. And, uh, and that was pretty much it. I, I would collect those things. At the end of my mission, I just had a, a manila envelope with those little pamphlets and tapes. It wasn't a lot. These days, everyone carries around a, a huge encyclopedia of anti-Mormon literature in their laptop bag or, you know, it's on their desk at work or at home in their bedroom. It's just a click away. It's just a Google search away. And, uh, and you can come upon it very innocently. So the fact is, uh, we're, we're likely to be, uh, people are likely to encounter all, all kinds of things. And uh, I think we need to be a little more proactive about introducing people to those things so that they can build up some antibodies and become prepared. And when they hear about them later from a hostile source, they won't be going, oh, I wish someone would have told me about that. Uh, they may not understand it all, but at least they will have heard about it uh, from someone they trust. I'm guessing my time is probably about up. Let me just give you one illustrative story before I sit down, and I'm sure we'll be talking interactively later. This past Tuesday, I had lunch with a friend of mine who's a professor at BYU, and he, he was telling me he team teaches the 12- and 13-year-old Sunday school class with another professor at BYU. And I won't tell you their names. You would probably know both of their names. Um, and he was telling me just a few weeks ago, the course of study for that class is the presidents of the church. And so his partner was teaching the class that particular Sunday, and uh, they were talking about the years of John Taylor's presidency when he was on the underground. And so he just casually happened to mention that, you know, this was all as a result of polygamy and, and, and uh, you know, legislation, federal legislation against polygamy. He mentions the P word. Little girl raises her hand. Twelve-year-old little girl, daughter of the bishop. What's polygamy? We're talking seventh and eighth graders. It wasn't just this little girl. There were a minority of the students in that class that knew what polygamy was and knew it had the church had engaged in it. Uh, the majority of the class had no idea that the church had any connection with polygamy, and there were s several students that didn't even know what the word meant. Wow. Uh, if that little girl moved to Illinois, where I live, I can guarantee her classmates would be asking her on a daily basis how many mothers she has. <laughs> and which way do you want your, your daughter to find out about polygamy? Do you want to explain it to her or have someone explain it to her at church? Or do you want to have the kids at school mock her and have that be the first time she learns about it? The choice is up to us. So those are my thoughts. Thanks. not as eloquent a speaker as Kevin and Blake, so I'm going to read what I've prepared. According to Richard Bushman, part of his motive for writing Rough Stone Rolling was to introduce the saints to excuse me, troublesome material and to prevent horrible shocks later. He was concerned to find that many Latter-day Saints were unaware of some of the potentially sticky issues in Mormon history. When they discover these issues, they often are shocked to the point that everything else comes tumbling down. 
If their teachers covered up Joseph Smith's flaws, what else are they hiding? The topic of inoculation, ideological inoculation, is apparently a hot one right now. In the latest uh, Farms Review, for maybe the few of you of the people here that read it, uh, Dr. Daniel Peterson's editor's introduction uh, just had a section about inoculation as well. I'd like to explore two questions on this matter. Number one, has the church been hiding the truth? And number two, how can the church help members with uh, ideological inoculation? First question, has the church withheld challenging details of the past? The answer is both yes and no. Information can be withheld intentionally or unintentionally. In the context of early creations of LDS history, we find a tradition among most 19th century biographers, which was the primary form of historical creations, that emphasized the positive aspects of heroic figures in hopes of inspiring readers while often exaggerating or even fabricating anecdotes. Uh, the story of George Washington cutting down his father's cherry tree is a good example of that. In cases of early American biographies involving religious or philosophical movements, the movement frequently took center stage and the history was a tool for evangelizing the movement. Any information that might harm the movement was withheld from the biography or history. Early Mormon historians, like many historians of their era, were not trained in history, but were instead influenced by the English Puritans whose histories were written as faithful explanations of their events. These Puritans, as well as early LDS historians, believed that, like the Hebrews before them, they were God's chosen people, whose coming to America was part of God's unfolding plan. Ronald Walker, David Whitaker, and James Allen explain that Puritan history and biography told the saga of God's dealings as seen in their personal lives. In short, Puritan biography and autobiography were simultaneously scripture as well as history. Accuracy and realism were largely things of the future. Apostle George Q. Cannon, whose faith-promoting stories were intended for the youth of the church, wrote some of the more popular historical accounts of early Mormonism. Such works, like many other non-LDS works of the 19th century, were defensive in tone, biased, one-dimensional, and devoted to evangelizing a particular perspective. Today, such writings are referred to as hagiographies. It wasn't until the middle of the 20th century that the modern biography, critical, multidimensional, and objective, at least in principle, began to take its present form. The early faith-promoting histories, however, became the source of historical knowledge for many church members and launched similar popular works for decades to come. While it can be said that early LDS histories intentionally withheld challenging and non-flattering information, in the context of the times, this was not unique to Mormonism. And unfortunately, this trajectory has continued for many decades uh, after the early 19th century histories, and the same type of uh, attitudes were promoted. And actually, we've only seen a change within the last few decades. As for the unintentional censoring of information, we turn to the church curriculum, the primary purpose of which is to support the mission of the church, to bring people to Christ. Very little history is generally discussed in church classes. Even every fourth year, when the Doctrine and Covenants is taught, which includes some church history, the primary goal of the class is to help members draw closer to God, seek the Spirit, and understand gospel principles. Thousands of virtually untrained volunteers with varying degrees of gospel and historical knowledge endeavor to bring the spirit into the classroom so that class members can be spiritually edified. While some gospel doctrine teachers may be knowledgeable enough to share detailed historical information, the manuals generally give basic historical outlines that specifically relate to lessons focusing on one or more gospel principles. In short, church is a place for worship, spiritual edification, 
and enlightenment and not for in-depth historical discussion. Recently, an ex-Mormon on an ex-LDS discussion board related an anecdote of how he purposefully left a controversial book on his desk in order to spark some fun conversations with his LDS father who was coming to visit. When his father asked about the book, which dealt with early LDS plural marriage, the ex-member's son shared some thoughts regarding Joseph's involvement with polygamy. Joseph Smith was a polygamist? Asked the father, why didn't I know that? Of course, this ties very closely to what uh, Kevin just talked about with uh, people in the church not understanding polygamy. So here is an adult. Commenting on his father's ignorance, the ex-member explained that his father is a convert of over 30 years and, although having held numerous church callings, has never previously encountered this information. According to the son, the church doesn't mention this anywhere. His father, seemingly troubled by this disclosure, claimed that the church is acting like it has something to hide. At this point, our ex-member writes, concluding his anecdote, I rested my case. The seeds of doubt had been planted. Does the church not realize how stupid it is to cover up their own history? Many of the ex-Mormons to whom our apostate was writing chimed in with agreement, with another critic noting how this story clearly illustrates the church's adeptness at hiding its history. Another ex-member, writing on a different message board, claimed that after a lifetime of faithful church attendance and sincere seminary study, she had no idea whatsoever that Joseph Smith entered into polygamy. The church claims yet another critic tries desperately to keep such info hidden from its members. While it appears that at least some members are unaware that Joseph was engaged in plural marriage, and while it's true that this topic is not discussed frequently in church publications or Sunday classes, since it does not generally relate to modern directives or gospel principles, is it fair to claim that Joseph's involvement with plural marriage is covered up or hidden by the church? Joseph's involvement in plural marriage has been mentioned in official LDS publications, such as the February 1977 Ensign. One of Joseph's plural marriages was specifically noted in another ensign just a year later. In a 1989 ensign article, we read that the prophet introduced the doctrine of plural marriage. And in 1992, an ensign article pointed out that Emma, Joseph's wife, had difficulty with the principle being practiced by her husband. Even the official LDS youth youth magazine, The New Era, published an article in 1973 explaining that keys to plural marriage were bestowed to Joseph, Joseph by the prophet Elias. The Church History in the Fullness of Times, which was printed in 1999, which is a manual used in institute classes and in church history classes at BYU, some mentions that plural marriage was revealed to Joseph as early as 1831 and was later taught to other priesthood leaders who were expected to live the principle. Finally, when we turn to the official course guides for those who teach the adult Sunday school classes, we find the same thing. Both in 1979 and 1996, course Guides discuss the history of LDS polygamy, beginning with its inception as a doctrine revealed to Joseph Smith and end with its public announcement in 1852. In the most current Sunday School Guide, printed in 1999, we read that Joseph and other early church leaders practiced plural marriage. As we examine other challenging issues in LDS publications, we find that many, if not all, of the stickier issues have been noted, examined, or discussed by believing Latter-day Saint historians in a variety of LDS-targeted publications, conferences, and programs. The Ensign and his forerunner, the Improvement Era, have run articles discussing such issues as the Kinderhook Plates, Joseph's use of a seer stone in the bottom of a hat to translate the Book of Mormon, the Mountain Meadows Massacre, a limited geography of the Book of Mormon, and the belief that other Amerindians coexisted with uh, Book of Mormon peoples, and more. Less popular LDS publications, such as BYU Studies, have also discussed such 
issues as Joseph's early treasure digging days, the Danites, the word of wisdom in 19th century thought. All of these and more have been discussed by LDS scholars in Farms Publications, Dialogue, and of course Sunstone. Why, if such information has been made available in, Ensign, in the Ensign and other LDS target publications, are some members still aware of these issues? Part of the problem may be the infrequency in which the Ensign, certainly the most popular of the publications, prints articles on these topics. And the other part of the problem may have to do with a general disinterest in greater knowledge. It's been said that America is a nation of non-readers. We are by and large literate, but we are often uninformed and tend to spend less time reading than watching TV or surfing the internet. A 2004 survey, for instance, found that the average U.S. adult spends 14 times as much time watching TV than reading a book. Studies indicate that in the past two decades, 25% fewer American adults spend time reading books. According to another study, one-third of high school graduates never read another book for the rest of their lives. 42% of college graduates never read another book after college. 80% of U.S. families did not read a book last year, and 70% of U.S. adults have not been in the bookstore in the last five years. When we do read, we often choose pop magazines or novels over nonfiction. According to a 2003 Gallup poll, a full 83% of Americans could not name then-current Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, William Rehnquist. And nearly a third of Americans were unable to name the current U.S. Vice President, Dick Cheney. According to Carl Sagan, 63% of Americans are unaware that the last dinosaur died before the first human lived. And nearly half of American adults don't know that the Earth goes around the sun and that it takes a year to do so. Nearly half. The problem is even more pronounced among the nation's teens. One-third of U.S. teens, for instance, were unable to associate Hitler with Germany. Pulitzer Prize-winning historian David McCullough complains that many high school and college students are unaware that George Washington was commander of the Continental Army or that the 13 original colonies were all on the East Coast. I listened to him speak not that long ago, and he was talking to a group of students and, and about 13 colonies, and they were looking at the West Coast. Where is, where is this at? They had no idea. With, with such non-reader ignorance, is it really any wonder that a number of Mormons are unfamiliar with Joseph's involvement in plural marriage? To repeat a comment generally attributed to Mark Twain, the man who does not read good books has no advantage over the man who can't read them. Second question, how could the church help inoculate members? I think the church recognizes that we have a problem. Elder Dallin Oaks recently noted that, quote, we're emerging from a period of history writing within the church of adoring history that doesn't deal with anything that's unfavorable, and we're coming into a period of warts and all kind of history, end quote. Elder Oaks expresses concern, however, that, quote, there are constraints on trying to reveal everything. You don't want to be getting into and creating doubts that didn't exist in the first place, end quote. Undoubtedly, some who receive inoculation may not survive. In general, however, and I would suspect that Elder Oaks would agree with me, inoculation would save more testimonies than it would damage. In the, in, uh, the November issue of the Sunstone, uh, where I wrote the article, uh, uh, Next to Murder, I, there was an inset to the article about uh, ideological inoculation. Um, and in that, I quote uh, Dan Peterson, who uh, posted a story on Times and Seasons regarding a presentation uh, given by the late Stanley Kimball. 
Peterson actually re repeats this uh, anecdote in the latest Farms Review, but with more detail. But I'd like to quote the part that I had in the Sunstone article. Uh, he's talking again about Stanley Kimball. He says, Kimball spoke of three levels of Mormon history. Level A, he said, is the Sunday school version. Everything on level A is obviously good and true and harmonious. Level B, however, is the anti-Mormon version of the same story. On this level, everything that you thought was good and true and harmonious actually turns out to be evil and false and chaotic. <laughs> Kimball noted that the church typically seeks to keep its members on level A, or at least feels no institutional obligation to bring them to a deeper level. Why? Because souls are lost on level B. And though level C might be academically more desirable, it cannot be accessed without at least some exposure to level B. Were he, were he in a leadership position, Kimball said, he would probably make the same decision. Once members of the church have been exposed to level B, though, he said, their only hope is to press on to the richer, more complicated version of history that is to be found on level C, which he contended, and I agree, turns out to be essentially and profoundly like level A. The only cure for bad historiography is better historiography. The only remedy for bad anti-Mormon arguments is better counter-arguments. Elder Oaks, who in 1979 co-authored the Warts and All Carthage Conspiracy, complains, however, that, quote, there are a lot of things the church has written about that members haven't read. The Sunday school teacher that gives Brother Jones's understanding of church history may be inadequately informed and may not reveal something which the church has published. It's in the history written for college or institute students, sources written for quite mature students, but not every Sunday school teacher that introduces people to a history is familiar with that. And so there's no way to avoid the criticism. The best I can say is that we're moving with the times. We're getting more and more forthright, and I think that's great to hear. Recently, R. Scott Lloyd, an LDS uh, church news reporter, has written occasional church news articles on some of the stickier issues. His articles include some of the issues in the PBS documentary, The Mormons, as well as the First Vision and the Mountain Meadows Massacre. His article on the PBS issues generated more responses than any other article he had published in his 22 years of uh, the church news. Lloyd is currently working on an article that will tackle Joseph's use of a seer stone to translate the plates. So we see again the church trying to put these things out there. What more can be done? In my opinion, tidbits can be added to the curriculum. I don't think great depth should be given to such topics in church, but some of the issues can be touched upon so the saints realize that the issues are out there. The church could also add a section to its website that candidly discusses some of the difficult issues. I believe the primary source for church dissemination should be the official magazines, and articles should be included more frequently for new generations, converts, or the typical Mormon who only occasionally reads the magazines, which I think describes most Latter-day Saints. I see the church making efforts to prevent shocking discoveries and damaged testimonies and hope that more church publications will produce forthright material discussing potentially challenging issues. I believe we will see the church increasingly involved in ideological inoculation for both investigators and member retention, and I look forward to such changes. Thank you. I'm going to begin with an anecdote, because I think it, uh, well, two anecdotes. I learned about the Book of Abraham controversies and decided that I would learn a bit about Egyptians so that I could address it when I was in ninth grade. I learned about that by reading the 1912 issues of the Improvement Era. I read that because they discussed and, pr and printed in full the Spalding um, pamphlets that discussed the problems with the Book of Abraham. 
with full responses by um, uh, Mr. Webb and by B.H. Roberts. The Improvement Era saw absolutely no problem in publishing the full length of what was at that time the strongest broadside against the Mormon Church that existed. So I have a different view of Mormon history than I suppose some who think that we were all living in la-la land until we got to our day and we are the champions and we know more than everybody else and we're much more open. I simply don't believe it. Second anecdote. About a year ago, my 24-year-old daughter, who has delivered to me two grandchildren, came to me and said, Dad, why didn't you ever teach me about Joseph Smith and polygamy? And I looked at her in utter dismay. She said, the church is hiding from us about polygamy. You see, she'd had a friend who, who she roomed with at BYU. And her friend was just staunch. And when she went back east and she was married to a man and they found all about Joseph Smith's polygamy and decided that they would leave the church. And she had a conversation with her friend and this was news to her. At which point I simply reminded her, I said, it seems to me that the best way for the church to make sure that you don't find out about something is to put it in the scriptures and then tell you to read the scriptures because then you'll never find out about it. It's right there in DNC 132 and I remind you that when you were a senior in high school we had a family home evening on it where I talked not merely about polygamy but polyandry and my take on it. Did you simply ignore me? To which he simply admitted the answer was yes. I have no reason to doubt that if we tried to teach the 12-year-olds and inoculate them at this time, we'd get the very same result. And it would be the same with the 18-year-olds, the 24-year-olds, the 36-year-olds, and the 54-year-olds. And we would have to wake up the high priest so that we could get them at 64 and 72 as well. <laughs> so, how do we go about this? What you've already heard is that there's massive ignorance. And the massive ignorance can be dangerous because people will discover for the first time what they've been taught all their lives and think that they've been betrayed. That's what I believe is happening. I'm also going to make another observation. I've never met a person who left the church because they believe too little. They always begin by believing too much. It's only when they've believed too much and they find out that their too much isn't the truth, they then blame the church for teaching what wasn't true and was never taught by the church, and they feel betrayed because it's not true. And the church will admit that it's not true, so they've been betrayed twice. I would give specific examples of that too, but I just, I'm not going to go into that. Let me say that for me personally, addressing these kinds of issues is absolutely essential. Let me ask some really broad questions, however. What is the proper forum in which to do this teaching? What are the issues we would teach? Some of them, I mean, they're simply non issues for me. They may be issues for others, the different versions of the first vision. The reasons that that's not an issue for me is because I'm an attorney. And I've listened to the same person tell the same story about the same event at least eight different times, and they never get it straight twice, ever. I've, I've listened to people tell, the same, tell about the same accident. They were going north, they were going south, the light was red, the light was green. It was a red car, it was a green car. It was a lady driving, there was a midget driving. I mean, I'm, I'm not making this up. People's memories are simply different at different times in their lives. And every time we think about an issue, I also have a background in neurophysiology, we change it in our memory. Merely by thinking about it and remembering it, we make new connections. And it changes the memory. Human memory is like that. Attorneys like me make a living at knowing all about how fallible the human memory is. And we play with it in the courtroom, and it's a lot of fun. <laughs> so, what is the proper forum? Well, I doubt that the junior Sunday school is the proper forum. 
I doubt that Sunday school even is the proper forum, and it pains me to say that, but the purpose of meeting in Sunday school and studying the gospel isn't to study anti-Mormon arguments. It's to study the scriptures together and learn together. At this point in my life, I'm a lot less interested about the kinds of issues that consume me when I was ninth to 12th grades. I'm more interested in spiritual growth and love. I'm a lot more interested in learning directly from my Heavenly Father than in making sure that I'm listening to the mission president and getting it right. I think the spiritual growth comes at various levels with various people. And the problem that we face is that everybody's at a different level and we don't know when they're ready or whether they're going to listen. I can tell you that I've had this conversation at some very high levels. How do we address these issues? There's been an affirmative decision made up until a few years ago to leave this decision and to confront these issues to the individual to search out for themselves and to make it available in form where if they decide to find the information, it's readily available. The church hasn't betrayed anybody on these issues. It simply decided that the best way to do it is to leave accountability to the members themselves. When I hear somebody complain, the church betrayed me, I want to say, did you take personal accountability for finding out? Because the issue you're now complaining about, I knew about in 10th grade. And it's not because I'm so much more accountable, it's just that I became aware of it. By the 10th grade, I had already dealt with polygamy, Adam God, the Seer Stone, Book of Mormon, and archaeology, and um, the uh, polyandry. I had, I mean, I had dealt with all of those issues. And I don't, by dealt with them, I don't mean that I had fully resolved them. I simply mean I had confronted them. I knew what they were, and I had thought them through to, at a level to ask myself, what does this mean for my faith? That doesn't make me particularly special. What it means, however, is that it's fully possible for a person to know about these things very early, and it's fully possible that those who don't know about them simply didn't look. In fact, I'm convinced that that's the case, because if I could find out in 1974 and 75 myself, simply searching these things at a ninth grade level, I'm really sure that a person who's older and has greater resources could have found out about the same thing. So I don't have a lot of sympathy with the church has betrayed me and the church hid it from me kind of an argument because the church has put it out there, made it available. I can show you these kinds of discussions in BYU studies. I can show them that they were specifically discussed um, at great length in church publications and by books that were published by BYU Press and by Deseret Book. They've all been made available. So, you know, what I want to say is that instead of complaining and blaming Taking personal accountability will go a lot further. And I think that people who are willing to blame others for their lack of information and knowledge are willing to blame just about anything. Now let me tell you what I do regard. So what is the proper forum? Certainly institute is the proper forum. There ought to be a class that addresses specifically problematic issues with church history or anti-Mormon arguments and responding to them. We ought to have such classes at the institute level and forthrightly address these things. You know, evangelicals, when they go to seminary, and we call ours a seminary, but it's nothing like the seminary that evangelicals and Protestants and Catholics send their students to. We ought to have the kind of, you know, what do they have? They have a, a, a course that reviews the kinds of arguments that are brought against the Bible and its historicity, the problems with, with authorship. In fact, I can tell you that many, many people do, in fact, lose their faith in, in a professional seminary because facing the issues that relate to authorship of biblical documents and whether they're trustworthy are difficult issues. They're not easily addressed. Um, 
But I believe that at the institute level we ought to have, and certainly at BYU, I think that it's a crime if somebody can take four years of religion down at BYU and never have heard of the documentary hypothesis. They don't know what the synoptic problem is. How many of you know what the synoptic problem is? How many of you know what the documentary hypothesis is? It's a challenge for you now to simply find out because these are the most basic hypothesis about the biblical documents and how they came together. And if you're going to base your faith on something, you at least ought to know about it. <coughs> the kinds of problems, however, that I think are far more pressing for us now, at least the kinds of issues that I find far more pressing and that I would like to address, I think ought to be addressed specifically also in philosophical classes everywhere. And they are. The issues of scientific naturalism and what it means to live in a world where we believe that everything has a cause and the cause is physical. Now, I don't suppose... How many of you believe that Mormonism is a form of scientific naturalism? That is, everything has a naturalistic explanation. Okay? I suggest that what scientific naturalism entails is that everything has a cause that we can discern through physics. And the kind of more pure and refined matter that we talk about can't be discovered through physics as far as we know. And therefore, the kinds of things that we want to talk about, we're not simply a scientific naturalism because there's an entire realm that our physics can't get to. And what scientific naturalism assumes is that our physics, as we study it, is the entire realm of what can be accessed for the truth. And there's nothing outside of it. If you don't believe that that's what scientists assume, then I suggest that, that you ought to read what they have to say. Read a Richard Dawkins. Read a uh, Dennett. Read the people who are now making arguments against theism and saying that to even rear a child to believe in God ought to be considered to be child abuse. If you think I'm making that up, I'm not. The other kinds of problems that I find that, and it's because I have taught the philosophy classes at BYU, I'll just share with you an anecdote. I had a, I had a general authority's daughter in one of my classes. One of the units that I teach, because I, teach, I taught a course in philosophy of religion, had to do with the problem of evil. When I teach the problem of evil, I teach it in what I consider to be a strongest form. Now, let me say that we have a duty, if we're going to take on the issues that confront Mormonism, to state them in their strongest form. To state them in the form that a real person who would push the argument would state it. And so I stated the problem of evil in the strongest form, which was to tell a story about a guy who this actually happened, who was out on State Street, had his, his, his um, daughter with him, and uh, saw a car screaming down the street very, very fast. His daughter began to walk out into the street, and he thought to himself, oh, this will be interesting. And, of course, she was hit and killed. He was convicted of manslaughter, but I reminded everybody in the class that he wasn't alone standing on the corner. God was there with him, and he had at least the power to do the same thing the father could have done. Why don't we convict God of manslaughter? You see, that is a real problem. <laughs> and I suggest that addressing it takes real care and thought, and I believe that it can be addressed and addressed competently. And there's a lot to be addressed and there's a lot to be learned from addressing it. Now let me say another thing about what we do when we inoculate the saints. I'm all for it. I think that it's incumbent on us now that we live in what I'll call the bold new world of the Internet where you can get information and misinformation at the click of a mouse. It simply isn't feasible to believe that the first thing that people do when they hear about Mormonism isn't to go and click and find and put in, you know, Google Mormon and find out what they see. And the first thing that will pop up will be four or five anti-Mormon sites. There's a reason for that, and it's simply that there are a lot more evangelicals in the world than there are Mormons. 
And so we've got to address these issues. We've got to address them forthrightly, and we've got to address them in a way that will assist the members. There are dangers, however, in doing so. There are dangers on both sides. I discovered one of these dangers when I did what I, what probably was an inoculation. I published the expansion theory of the Book of Mormon, where I laid forth as forthrightly as I could the primary arguments against the historicity of the Book of Mormon. And then I responded to them or told why the response, why in the in uh, light of the fact that we don't have an adequate response that doesn't count decisively against the historicity of the Book of Mormon. I then gave also several arguments in favor of the historicity of the Book of Mormon and came up with a theory that would reconcile the diverse data. I don't mind telling you that there were a number of people who believed that I was raising all of those arguments for the first time, and I was the anti-Mormon. So what I was doing was arguing against the historicity of the Book of Mormon rather than addressing the arguments that had already been given. I will readily admit this. I did my best to strengthen the arguments where I believed that they hadn't been told adequately or where I believed a stronger argument could be given. So in that sense, maybe I was giving a stronger argument. But that was only so that I could place it into his perspective and put it into a full theory. However, I was called in, if you will, asked by my good friends, three of them, the members of the Twelve, to explain myself why I would publish such an article. I had a conversation with three of the Twelve. Some of those present know who those three were. And at, at, uh, <laughs> at a certain point in the discussion, one of them said, well, let me see. You believe that Joseph Smith had gold plates, that they were delivered by an angel, that they were written by ancient prophets, and that it was translated by the gift and power of God. And the other one of the others looked at him and said, well, I don't get it. What's wrong with that? Well, <laughs> there is nothing wrong with that. But what they were really questioning is, why would you address all of these very difficult issues and do so in print? And the reason that I would do so in print is that I believe that honest people address the issues as strongly as they can. They inform themselves. And I guess I've always had the assumption that if I were going to base my life on something, I ought to know all about it, and I ought to be as proficient at knowing about it, assessing it, learning from it, and growing from it as I could. I believe that that, however, is the duty that every Latter-day Saint has. Maybe I'm naive. Maybe it's an assumption I make that you don't share. But I guess I just don't get why you don't share it if you don't. So the challenge of inoculating the saints is on both sides. One is being misunderstood and that we may be thought to be doing something that we're not doing. Honestly exploring one's faith is no sin. Coming to the conclusion that there aren't very good answers for some of the problems is no sin. Doing the best that one can in light of all of the evidence and coming to a best conclusion is no sin. However, and this is my final observation, we have been given an instrument by God placed in our hearts to know the truth. I would urge that the study not merely be done with the mind, but that it be done with an open heart and prayer and love, and with the sense that the people who are involved in the church aren't simply out there to bamboozle us and betray us, but they are too doing the best that they can. I can tell you that there are general authorities who have no idea about the kinds of issues that would be problematic for the saints. They simply haven't encountered them. Many of them are businessmen or worse lawyers, and they just don't know because they've been doing something else very successfully in their life up until the time they became general authorities. My experience is that they're good people and they're doing the best they can. There are many who are aware of the issues and are wondering how do we deal with them, what kind of answers do we give, and if we're going to address them, we've got to address them in such a way that we don't leave people simply hanging. So 
When we inoculate the saints, we've got to make sure that the vaccine won't kill us. We've got to have it adequately tested because the FDA won't allow a vaccine on the market until it's been through a lot of tests. So I guess I leave you with the question, how do we test this vaccine? Thank you. Thank you, all three of you, for those uh, wonderful, thoughtful, personal, and theoretical comments. Very much appreciate it. I have a couple of quick responses, and then we'll open the discussion in the crowd. Um, Blake's last question, I think, is is one that rings in my ears. And, and knowing Blake and I both have a uh, sympathy for William James, he would say, well, you just got to try it out and then look out behind you and count the number of moans and cries of the wounded when you do something good. Okay? And uh, if, it's, if it's within range, call it good day, you know? No, no, no good deed goes without, of course, uh, negative consequences as well as good consequences, and that seems to be the tragedy of our particular lot in life. And the atonement of Christ, we hope, will make up for it if our hearts are right. Uh, the other uh, thing I wanted to say was uh, I want to underscore the idea that, that, that Blake, in passing, uh, mentioned to you. The, the largest force in the world today, the, but the, the, the fastest growing religion in terms of religion as a worldview is secular humanism. And it's interesting how the missionaries of secular humanism are picking up the pace um, right now, and we ought to be aware of it. Um, any Mormonism or, or proselytizing is considered by, they use this word, cultural genocide. A missionary is committing cultural genocide. He's going into a community and trying to change their fundamental belief system, their structure. This is the first time I've heard this. I didn't really talk. It said that you treat, choose, treat a child to pray, it's child abuse. We say that's outrageous. But at, at the level of sincere belief, and let's give him the possibility that he has a sincere belief. We're teaching everybody about Santa Claus, and it's screwing the world up, okay? Because when they find out that Santa Claus isn't there, they're hanging in the breeze, or they're becoming these radical, uh, non-truth believers that go out and blow people up or blow themselves up because they're too angry. So that's, that's that side of the story, and we need to be aware of it, and like like the New Testament tells us, to come forth strongly with reasons for our faith and, and meet those critiques and understand that that is a strong critique out there and it's gain, gaining great power. And the only thing we can do, is, of course, is try the power of the word on it and uh, use our testimonies and our explanations on why we believe it's just the opposite of abuse to teach our children. Uh, those are my comments on those. I really appreciated both of the other speakers. I wanted to respond to yours, uh, your personal statement about uh, what happened in your ward growing up by saying I was touched by it. And in my life, uh, my own daughter uh, came to me at age 14 and uh, said that she'd had it with the church, that she just didn't want to go to sacrament meeting anymore. She felt there ought to be church truth someplace else that was less boring than this. And uh, and she looked me in the eye, and I took her sincerely, and I said, let's go for it. Let's find it. Truth will cut its own way. Where we live, Our religion, we have a God that says, if you can find someone that can out-love him, go for him. And 
So we talked about for a few minutes uh, how I brought the books out, stacked them up on the table and said, but you've got to give any religion its, its due. You can't just go to church one day and say you've checked it out. You've got to read a little bit about it, spend some time there. So you pick a church and we'll get into some depth and give it a chance. She was in sacrament meeting next week. <laughs> she was 14 and she just wanted to feel that freedom. The truth will cut its own way. That daddy isn't covering things up. We don't have to worry about it. Okay? And the cover-up, as we've learned in American politics, we should learn in the church, is always worse than the sin. It always is. And your comment to begin with, that the, that the feeling of being lied to is so hard to deal with. You can forgive it, but you can never quite reconcile yourself again in a feeling of trust like you were before. That's, again, why the atonement, I think, is needed. Um, and it even happens institutionally that way. But we should be so careful about that issue. Let it out there so we don't break the trust that uh, our children and, and our brothers and sisters have. Those are my comments. Thank you again for these both thoughtful and loving comments that came from these three brothers. Your time to ask questions. I frequently have the elders uh, come by my house, and I am amazed every time I start a discussion with them because none of them have ever known about the Mountain Meadow Massacre. How can they know something if they don't know it existed? You know, I mean, you, you just can't go off searching for blindly for different things. I was having a discussion earlier this year with a former regional representative, and we were discussing this new movie that's coming out on the Mountain Meadow Massacre. And he said, of all the audacity, they're going to release that on 9-11 as if they're associating the church with these terrorists over in Iran. I said, it happened on 9-11. He didn't know that. Twelve years ago, there was a video, a movie on TV about uh, Bill Hickman and Porter, and it was all make-believe, but it had some facts in it and so forth. And I was teaching the 16-year-olds in Sunday school. And they had all of their friends asking them all these questions about that. I had videotaped it, so I brought it into the Sunday school class, and I showed this video, and I'd play segments of it, five minutes, and then we'd stop, and I would discuss with them what was fact and what was fiction. And I said, this is a movie that has been made for TV, but you need to know what parts of it are, in fact, truth, and which facts are just to make this a very interesting story on TV. And they really appreciate it because then they could deal with their, their uh, fellow teenagers. Anybody want to respond to that? Uh, we appreciate it. Something you said reminded me of I, I blog on By Common Consent, uh, as some of you may know, and uh, uh, I posted a blog within the last year uh, entitled Missionary Malpractice Per Se. And, and it had to do with um, we had the elders over and and uh, they were teaching a black family, and, and, and I asked them, do you discuss with this family the, the historic uh, practice on not giving blacks the priesthood? Is there a policy about that? And they said, no. It, as far as we know, no one talks about it unless someone asks. And, uh, and I thought that was terrible because, because it's not a question of, uh, you know, if someone, an American black person is going to learn about that. It's just a question of when. And it's absolute, I mean, this is a, in a whole different area. It's absolutely is going to, people are going to learn about it. 
So why wouldn't we take the opportunity to try to explain that the best we could? So I, I had this whole blog about that, and and someone kind of caught me off guard uh, and pointed out that you know just telling missionaries that, that they should you know explain this by itself isn't a very good idea because these missionaries they weren't even alive then they don't know anything about it and uh, you're likely to get a lot of old folklore you know the, you know they couldn't have had the priesthood because of the curse of Cain and they weren't valued in the preexistence and I hadn't even thought about that I, I have this bad habit of assuming that everyone knows what I know these missionaries don't know that and so something like that uh, you know it would take like you know, if I were a mission president, I would pass out Armin Moss's uh, Sunstone article in Q&A format and say, use this, and, and if you can't figure it out, just give it to them to read, but have them call me or something. But So that's a problem, and it's a challenge, because, you know, a missionary doesn't necessarily have the capacity to, to, to teach an investigator or something like that. Um, I enjoyed, Blake, I enjoyed your story of your, uh, your daughter, but the some of the follow-up wasn't persuasive to me. Uh, the idea that it's on the, totally on the person's individual responsibility and that the church doesn't cover up and doesn't uh, try to control their information, I, I think there are different points of view about that, and we could certainly point to many, many specific cases where the church has exactly done, tried to do that, tried to control the information, and sometimes through pure, pure misrepresentation. So it's not quite as simple as, as I heard the words coming out of your mouth, in, in my opinion. Um, but the, the, the real question I had was, was about, do we, is, is inoculation, the, the metaphor, is the, is the concept just kind of throwing difficult facts at people? Or is it, does it involve some change of the level of discourse or the way that we deal with issues of faith and and work through issues of importance to us. Um, in my opinion, if we really help, tried to inoculate in a good way, it might involve uh, a little bit of rethinking what exactly it means to follow the brethren. Uh, it might involve uh, a little bit of rethinking what we expect out of each other and out of, he- out of our human institutions and our human weaknesses. I'm sorry, or prophets, yes. And, and, and not to uh, show any less respect for them, uh, not to show any kind of, uh, of diminished stature, but to reframe the way we think about certain things. That, I think, could be an effective inoculation. It would require a little bit of a paradigm shift, a little bit of a cultural change in how we have Sunday. And I disagree that this should be outside of Sunday school. If our institutions can't include this kind of thing in some level, then we, I don't think it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's doing the kind of job it needs to do to really be effective. Right. So I'm just thinking, what does it mean? Do we just throw these facts and say, oh, you know, you never knew this, but and here's this now? Um, or, or do we help people frame issues newly and deal and reason through issues? I know it's hard because we're all at different levels. But how, how can we do that is my question. A, a little bit of a rhetorical question, but go for it. The problem has is that most uh, doctrine gospel teachers like me can't get through the lesson that we have, even with half of the material. And we just don't really have time to even get into it in a 45-minute class. It's nearly impossible. And the purpose of the class isn't to raise 
the kinds of questions that we're discussing. It's to meet together and discuss, you know, what does this mean for us now, essentially. So we have a real problem, and I think what inoculation means is something like this. Believing Latter-day Saints who approach these issues forthrightly in publication, on the blogs, and by having classes dedicated to it at a level where we know that people are actually interested because they've chosen to take the class, like Institute. If they're there, I assume they're actually interested in learning something. That's not always true in Sunday school, by the way. Um, So what I'm saying is, in those kind of fora, what we do is we have a course of study. We can't possibly study, for instance, and I always get a kick out of this when it comes to the peepstones. Right. What God can do is create a Urimum Thummim and have people read Egyptian through it, looking at the plates, but it's impossible for God to have a person look in a hat and see a stone, right? I mean, so we know that God can't really do it the way that it was done. It had to be done some other way that is even more inspiring. Well, I don't get that. I've never gotten that, to be honest with you. When I learned about the, the seer stone in the bottom of the head, I thought, well, of course, he didn't know Egyptian and Hebrew. He wouldn't have studied it in 1836. Anyway, so I guess what we're saying is what we're after is the psychological effect of the issue coming from a person of faith. It gives two messages. One is that a person of faith can know about it, may have worked it through, may have something to offer in response who knows about it, when I, when I confronted evolution as a sophomore in high school, I couldn't find anybody to talk to me about it. I knew I was on my own. I mean, my, my mom actually said I must be insane to worry about such issues as a sophomore. And she was probably right. I mean, that's probably true. But the bottom line is, a lot of this has to be done on our own. We can't possibly... I mean, how are you going to find... Even if you came to somebody who was on this panel and you wanted to address the kinds of issues that arise from a particular historical issue. We may not be the expert in that. We may not know all about it. When it comes to polygamy, I mean, I look at it and I hesitate because I believe that most of what's going on there is passing on gossip that was occurring in Nauvoo. We don't know a whole lot about it concretely. And so I've got to address somebody who also has the ability to deal with ambiguity, lack of final answers, and that takes a certain maturity. And neurophysiologically, kids aren't even available for that kind of advanced reasoning until age 25 as neurophysiological studies show that may stun you stuns me because I made all the important decisions in my life when I was 19 to 24 so <laughs> I would like to just quickly say I met rhetorical and that I was reading you as telling us yes we do need to reframe things at times and not just go to the direct issue the content but talk about how we're thinking about something thank you I'll direct this to Kevin Barney because I enjoy your posts on By Common Consent. Um, if you were put in charge of redoing Joseph Smith, Prophet of the Restoration, what would you change? That question assumes that I've seen Joseph Smith, Prophet <laughs> of the Restoration. <laughs> Yeah, I've never seen it, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I live in Illinois. Can you it? I, I can imagine it. I can imagine it. Well, I'll, no, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, I can imagine it, and I'll, I'll tell you what I would do. <laughs> That's real postmodern. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I've got this image of the movie up here. Um, actually, I, I've, I've thought I've kind of fantasized if I were, you know. 
Richard Dutcher and had Larry Miller money or something <laughs> about what my movie would look like. And, uh, and, and yeah, I, I'd have a, I'd have the uh, I'd have the boyhood operation and the moving around from the farms. And I'd, I'd have all the money digging in there and I'd have the stone in the hat. I think that stuff would be cool. I, I would have all that stuff in there. So, uh, and I don't blame people for not knowing about the stone in the hat because you open the picture and, you know, there he is studying the plates, you know, and he's got his finger and he's looking intently. So, I mean, I, I, part, part of the remedy is just for our church artists to, to learn a little bit about history and to, and to portray it accurately. So, sorry I can't be more specific. I, I can just make up things about the, of the movie. I have a, a quick anecdote and then a question for Blake. Um, I had my crisis of faith uh, when I was a missionary and shortly thereafter. I uh, <clears throat> ran across some anti-Mormon literature that was quoting Brigham Young on a number of subjects. And I did what I take Blake to be saying that one should do. I decided, well, I just need to study this stuff and I need to... I mean, I, I knew my mission president. I knew the church wasn't necess- hadn't told me this informa- about this information, so I thought that I would research it on my own. What I ended up doing was... Uh, requesting from home copies of the Journal of Discourses, requesting from home Bruce R. McConkie's Mormon Doctrine in English, requesting a number of apologetic works. And I became very disillusioned, not so much because uh, I felt the church had not told me certain things, but because what the church had told me was just really, really bad apologetics, and in some cases I felt duplicitous. And so I guess my question to you is, uh, I understand you to be saying that you have a little sympathy for those uh, who would blame the church uh, for not having given them information, either because maybe they had the information and didn't remember it in some cases, or because uh, they had the responsibility and the opportunity to search it out on their own. Uh, would you react differently in cases where uh, disillusioned individuals do uh, search it out on their own, and they just come across really, really bad materials authored by prominent members of the church? That's an excellent question because as a sophomore, I read Man is Origin and Destiny because I wanted to prove that evolution was false. By the time I was through with Man is Origin and Destiny, I was con- convinced that um, President Smith didn't have a clue about evolution or any of the science that supported it. <laughs> and so it wasn't really a crisis of faith. I just came to the conclusion that I really had the accountability and responsibility on my own to think that through, and I couldn't rely on somebody who didn't know about it, even if they were... And remember, this would have been 1973. Guess who the prophet was? So, you know, I'm looking at that kind of an issue. So, yeah, I mean, if I had picked up Bruce R. McConkie and I were under the impression that he, he, A, spoke for the church, and B, everything he said had to be exactly what was true, um, then I would have probably come to the conclusion that the church was false because they're, you know, Mormon doctrine is not going to do it for me. In fact, that entire way of, of approaching Mormonism to be, you know, perfectly blunt is something that I find abhorrent. I wouldn't approach Mormonism that way, and if that were all I knew of Mormonism, it would be a problem. So, yeah, if, if people find bad apologetics and they just conclude, you know, gee, this is really bad stuff, it doesn't even begin to answer my issue. But look, the reality is, is do the best that you can do. And I'm, you know, I have a philosophy background, so I actually believe that people have the responsibility I now believe it is a responsibility to know what the issues are as best they can and to think them through on their own, on their own light. I've never been under the impression, I've never heard anybody say, you've got to trust me and not God in this church, ever, not once. 
And so I've never had the impression that I couldn't figure it out for myself or do the best that I could. There are any number of issues that I'm not going to give. An, it, it's an answer that's satisfying to me. It's probably not satisfying to you and vice versa. Because what will satisfy you probably won't satisfy me in a lot of areas. I probably wouldn't rely on you for studies about you know, the cognitivity and whether or not materialism is a sufficient basis for uh, mental qualia. My guess is you don't know much about it. I know all about it, so I'm going to rely on myself mostly. So we have the responsibility to educate. And I'm going to, didn't you notice that when the statistics were given, that one-third of college graduates never picked up and read a book again, but 42% of college, no, it was high school graduates, one-third never read again. It was 42% for college graduates. And you know what that teaches me? That our, our educational institutions are primarily teaching us that learning for ourselves is boring. Hi. Um, one of the thoughts that I kind of had as I was listening to you guys discuss um, primarily that we need to inoculate and give this information, make it available, um, I kind of thought about my own personal experiences with dealing with sticky issues. And in hearing some of the comments you made, um, you know, I realized that sometimes as an apologetic you get a little creative with your theories to be able to respond to the sticky issues. Um, and the thought occurred to me is, is it so much a problem in the church that we don't talk about the sticky issues in that we don't give people um, the, the cultural ability to get creative with the issues? Kind of just to give you a couple quick examples, um, I'm, I'm a scientist by training, and uh, I completely believe in evolution. I also want to believe in the church, and so I've got creative how I can fit the two together. Um, however, if I ever try to discuss this with any of my more orthodox friends, I'm immediately, oh, t evil, terrible person. And, and, that's, and that's, you know, that's a pretty easy example. Another example could be um, polygamy and Joseph Smith. Say I come to the conclusion through my study that he made a mistake and that there's no other explanation. And I want to say, hey, he was a fallible, he was a good guy, the other things I believe in, but that's my conclusion. Well, that's obviously an even more radical thing that could keep you from getting a temple recommend. So my question would be is, does the panel feel that maybe if the church encouraged more flexibility in dealing with the issues, is this a dangerous thing? Is this a good thing? Um, that's kind of my thought. Your turn. My thoughts also uh, that your question ties into uh, a gentleman earlier that asked, you know, do we just throw out the facts, at least the way that I perceive the question. I think that um, I think you're right that there's a there's a problem with assumptions, uh, with with general perceptions, and so when we throw out, you know, that there are believing Latter Day Saints that uh, that uh, accept evolution, um, that recognize that prophets can be both men and prophets, fallible men, that there are there's some groundwork that needs to be laid again, perhaps in church magazines or in some institutional way, so that the rest of these problems can be understood in some sort of context. And, uh, you know, I don't know exactly how that's best approached. Um, personally, my feeling, again, is that Sunday school needs to be for spiritual edification, and there is very little time. In fact, there's been rumors, uh, I don't know if these are true or not, but there's, it always seems to pass around these rumors that, that Sunday school classes may be eliminated or shortened, uh, you know, to get more people to come out to church in, in, the, in the block time. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, 
so, so the, the, the best, you know, whether it's an institute class, which is definitely, you know, a good idea that as Blake suggested or in Ensign Magazines, uh, which, which would be a, a great, I think, source that the church could utilize their website and so forth. But there needs to be issues talked about uh, that profits are fallible, uh, that there are, that we don't necessarily need to find conflict between uh, belief and science, that, the, that there are Latter-day Saints that believe in evolution. And so if we get rid of these naive and simplistic and what I would term fundamentalist assumptions, um, a lot of these issues go away on their own. And, and it, uh, we start thinking new paradigms. A good example of what you're talking about, for instance, is the limited geography theory of the Book of Mormon. I mean, you know, I think that most members believe that the church teaches and has always taught, and the Book of Mormon teaches and has always taught, that all Lamanites have to be descended from Laman and Lemuel somehow, right? Well, as it turns out, you know, the apologists were adopting something that they had come to before in confronting the kinds of issues that would lead to a limited geography theory, so they use utilize something that is already available. But how does that play, for instance? I, I hear people arguing that the apologists are now leading the church and that the apologists have one view of reality in the way that the church is and that all the rest of the church has a different view. And, you know, you can go to a Sunday school class now and still hear, hear all of the Lamanites are all of the Indians, and that's all that there is to it. Well, that may be a very prevalent belief. And what do we do when we have this disconnect between what the scholars are saying and we're saying long before the kinds of challenges arose with the history of the Book of Mormon and the general theories of the church, mostly because of a received 19th century point of view. We have uh, about four minutes left and three people, so it's like, like in our ward testimony meeting. We're not going to end this now. This lady will be the last, so let's go. <clears throat> um, I'm Steve Johnson. I'm a physicist. I wanted to I'm, I'm a physicist. I want to comment on Blake's uh, remark. I, I actually agree with Blake, but what Blake said was that there's a theory that um, <clears throat> the universe isn't uh, uh, explained entirely by natural law, the laws of physics, only material matter, not spiritual matter. Y yes, that is the present view of, of physics. <clears throat> but I want to point out that that's the view of physics which is promoted mostly by non-physicists. Really thinking physicists are worried. They're worried because they can't fit gravity into the other forces. General relativity and quantum mechanics are incompatible. How can we say we understand the universe if we can't even understand how general relativity, which is time travel and stretching, the, the, the space-time continuum, and all the things you see on, on Star Trek, you're not compatible with quantum mechanics. It's, it's a great problem. And recently, um, Leonard Susskind, who is the, one of the great authors of, the, of string theory, which is, m most people think explains everything, has decided it's a failure. It's a failure. <clears throat> um, in in, in uh, cosmology, there's a thing called the anthropic principle, which says that the universe couldn't be the way it is unless it was designed for a purpose. And you can imagine that creates great debate. Uh, Steve Weinberg, who's probably the, who wrote the Bible on quantum mechanics and particle physics, says, but you can use the anthropic principle to calculate things you can't calculate any other way. Now, 
here we, we know that there is a spiritual force besides the four forces. And um, maybe it's our challenge to think of something called the theologic tropic principle. Maybe by th- working in theological principles, when we gain more knowledge of the universe, we can predict things that physicists can't predict and only think in, in terms of the normal forces, the physical forces. I want to say that there are many physicists besides the ones I mentioned. A very good physicist to lock, look at is Stanley Jackie. Uh, he, he says our, our, his, our, our culture, our Western civilization, comes from the idea that there's natural law, that Christ... And the Old Testament teaches that God does nothing except he does it by law. Islam does not understand that. That's why they're in trouble. All right. Last thing. Think of Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes always finds the guilty party because nobody can go through committing a crime without leaving evidence behind. Now think of Joseph Smith. He brings forth the Book of Mormon. Can he go through all these machinations without leaving evidence behind? Of course he can't. Read Joseph Smith. A Sherlock Holmes would find so much evidence that Joseph Smith left in his wake chiasms, Egyptian names, insights into history, Hugh Nibley's works. <clears throat> now, I, I, I think we have plenty of tools to, to, to reconcile the, the church with science and that's the thought I'd like to leave with you. Okay, I'll be quick and concise because I do actually have a question. Um, and this is based on what Blake said. Uh, two things, the first regarding those who have felt betrayed by the church, and the second regarding using your heart also as you seek things out. And my question is, um, I, I was brought up to find truth only with my heart as a child and young teenager. And so as I got older and started using my mind, um, and what started to think more about my faith, I didn't feel so much betrayed by the church as betrayed by my own heart, um, by myself. And so I'm in the process of trying to learn how to trust feelings, my heart, things like that, um, in finding faith. Again, and so my question would be, if any of you have experienced that, where you felt betrayed by your own feelings and how you've dealt with that. Well, the issue you raise is at the very heart of Mormonism. And the answer is, yes, I think the primary question that we all face is, can we trust our heart? There are times when our head will lead us astray. I told an example yesterday. I'll tell it here very quickly. I was going into a, uh, a school function, and a girl came and sat down by me, and I did something really strange. I turned to her without thinking, And I said, this is going to sound strange to you, but I have a message. God wants you to stop thinking about suicide. And her jaw dropped, and her eyes got great big, and she looked at me, and she said, how did you know? And I told her very honestly, I had no clue how I knew, (laughs) because I didn't. If I had to think about it with, if I had thought about it, if I had stopped to think about it first, I wouldn't have done it. So first, head can get in the way of simply acting and knowing. Second, I'm simply going to tell you that we use our head most of the time not for for reasoning but for rationalization that is most of our reasoning comes in justification of decisions we've already made in a life we already live almost all of it as a matter of fact the cognitive science demonstrates that that's how we actually use our reasoning third our scriptures are unanimous that we must study it out both heart and mind 
And it's only when we have an integrity of the two that we really know anything. And so if your mind is screaming one thing and your heart is screaming another, there's more work to be done. And that would be the final observation, I say. You were in line. Is that it? We have one. We went. Thanks, everybody, but we have uh, Sunstone, the new uh, CEO. Of <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of new to Sunstone, but if you go back into the 80s and, and realize who came to Sunstone, you had Hugh Nibley, you had Richard Bushman, uh, you had uh, Dan Peterson, and you had BYU professors and CES instructors and seminary um, people, and they were all here at Sunstone. Um, I understand why it's become more complicated, but I just want to tell Mike, uh, Blake, and Kevin that they're heroes to me for being willing to come and to be a part of this conversation. So, thank you. Thank you, everybody. See you next time or tonight.